Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to this edition of the QUB LawPod. My name is Adam Harkins and I'm a PhD student here at Queen's uh, in the law school. Today we're joined by Sarah Lagerson from Rutgers University. She's a sociologist studying the criminal justice system and today she gave a talk at Queen's um, on digital punishment through online criminal records. Nice to meet you, Sarah. Thanks for coming along. So as I mentioned, you're speaking about digital punishment through online criminal records. Um, so I was just wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about w- what you see as being digital punishment or how, how do you understand that term? Um, because it's sort of a new term and for law and criminology, it's not something that people would normally have an idea of what that means. It might have different connotations for different people. Yeah, so I uh, came to that term because the way that criminal records are produced in the United States has changed a lot. So, um, you know, over the past 20 years, we saw this huge rise in just the number of people who are arrested, charged, and convicted with crimes. So there's sort of more criminal records than ever before. At the same time, these records uh, under U.S. law are publicly available, so they would they disseminate across all these different online platforms very rapidly. And uh, the the reason is that is sort of couched in the First Amendment and and Freedom of Information Act uh, policies. And when different branches of criminal justice began to digitize their information, it automatically became publicly available. So you had more records, and then through the internet, you had more access to records. Now the records show up on private websites, they show up on social media, and so the term digital punishment kind of captures this new form of criminal sanction that is done through a digital way, but um, outside of the formal legal system. So just wanted to ask, uh, how, how did you come out onto this topic, or how did you get onto the research in this? That's a good question. I was doing research on the effects of criminal records on employment, housing, and I think that once you're in the field and actually understanding how criminal records were impacting people's lives in the U.S., it became clear that a lot of the sociologists or criminologists or lawyers even thought about records as a conviction record. So once you got all the way through the system, there's this record that says, you know, this thing happened and then you receive your punishment. And then we were doing all this research on, you know, how that that very legal punishment was leveraged against people. But I was figuring out that people were often more uh, distressed and more caught up because their mugshot appeared online or because they had a record from a really long time ago that just showed up again on the Internet out of nowhere. So I was in the field uh, interviewing people and they keep saying, well, this thing popped up out of nowhere. And I thought I had done my time or it had been dismissed by the prosecutor or by the judge. And so I realized that we needed to start to think a lot more critically about what a record actually is. And that led me into understanding that there's a big system of, of data sharing that's happening with records that um, we weren't capturing in our studies of, of policy before that. So would it be fair to say that it's not just the legal effects of the records, it's, there's a social, social effect as well from what happens when they get disseminated and when they get put online? So it's more about the, the social effect? Yeah. I think so. I think it's that I, as a researcher, was just surprised how many parts of people's lives this was impacting, and then what people did in response. So we tend to think of it as sort of like housing, employment, 
And those are like the big buckets of research. I was learning that people were having trouble going on dates, especially if they met online. Um, They were being found out by people at their churches. Uh, They were deciding not to volunteer. They're sort of self-selecting out of these these great things in life because they were afraid someone was going to conduct a Google search. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Like you don't really know sometimes if your old record's going to show up. You don't know when it's going to show up. And so there's this this sort of underlying stress. And um, yeah, there's there's deep social impacts. People also sometimes want to keep things in their past uh, from their kids or from someone they meet 20 years later because it doesn't reflect on who they are anymore. So there's a lot of identity politics and sort of being stuck with this label that represents this one thing that happened in your life maybe a really long time ago. Um, and it's very hard to shake. So how, what would, how, what's the actual process? How, how do these come to be online then? Um, is it through uh, public bodies doing this or is it private bodies who... Yeah, that's a great question. And this is very specific to the U.S., uh, is that criminal records are considered part of the public record. And so um, as they were digitized and made widely available, there was this big influx of data brokers and private companies coming in. And they would offer their services to the courts or to law enforcement saying, hey, we'll help you organize your booking photos that you want to post online. Or, hey, we'll help you digitize all these court records. You have this big backlog of paper records. And you guys need a better case management system. Well, when they were doing that, they were also replicating the data, um, aggregating it with other sources, and then reselling it to third-party brokers. So you have this sort of continuum of, yes, the records are originally produced by the state, but then they're multiplied, synthesized, and reproduced by private entities. Um, And it is legal for a host of reasons to republish information in the U.S. that's already been made public. So in some ways, it's we're kind of seeing the Pandora's box of everything just exploding all at once. Yeah, so it's it's almost like a commodification, like a third-party commodification. It's not even really the justice system itself. It's people taking advantage of the information that's there. That's and right. And, the, and they attach both an economic value to it because there's a lot of money to be made. Um, these companies will contract with the court system for millions of dollars to help them with this. And then they're selling the data, so they're they're kind of getting resources from both the state and from the private sector. Um, so then we attach not only this economic good, but then there's a social good. So employers or landlords or people going on dates or your new neighbors uh, feel that they have the social responsibility now to look into your background because it's available. So there's this value added to what used to be just a sort of separate criminal sanction um, across all these different aspects. Yeah. So is that how they would justify it then? So if they're saying they're third party, they would say there is the social value of us doing this. It's not just that we're making money. Or are they, because I know like there's a lot of news reports and saying like The Economist last year, it's like data is the new oil and it seemed to be like <laughs> this commercial like benefit, but it's, it's, they justify it as more than that. They say it's like a social value in doing it. It's- yeah, I think that uh, crime is a really tricky and emotionally charged topic. And you know, a lot of sociological research uh, for decades has shown that Crime can actually work to solidify the values of a community because just the process of othering or the the process of stigmatizing certain people or certain behaviors um, also is a way to kind of build cohesion in in, in a very Durkheimian way. And um, I think that using crime as as a proxy for talking about other social issues kind of takes you away from... Uh, maybe the stereotypes themselves and lets you rely on the justice systems labeling of people as yeah. a way to 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 kind of decide who's who's good and who's bad in society. So I think that there's this extra value to this type of data. 
And it is big data. I mean, it's massive. And if, as these other big data systems are emerging in consumer markets or in credit reporting or in real estate and healthcare, all of these records can be synthesized in these very attractive, um, very multidimensional products. But we really don't have any say over what's in our digital profile. So there's an enormous loss of autonomy for the individual person. Yeah. And um, would there be any issues with error in, mm -hmm. in the records? I mean, they couldn't all be correct, could it? If it's, I mean, is there, you mentioned in the talk about how there's not really cohesion between the different bodies, so like the police might have different records than the justice system, um, or sorry, the courts, um, and then between states and between counties, so that, that would affect it. Um, does it what, what would the implications of that be um, for credit reports and things like that? Does it create error? Or? Yeah, there's enormous error, and it's really hard to measure this error because, like, like, you know, we discussed earlier, there's the justice or the court system has their version of what's happened. The police have their version. The correctional institution within a state or county has their version. They don't really share data. Um, there are different institutions with different goals. They often work on different digital platforms or with different uh, computer programs. And so someone might get arrested for several things, but then, and that shows up in their law enforcement record, but then they're only charged with a, a couple of those crimes. Well, those arrests can still kind of sit there. And when an officer runs their name a couple months later, well, now they have these open warrants. And it's really like a data entry glitch and a, and a yeah. hole in the system, but that person's going to spend a couple days in jail until it gets figured out. Uh, there's a, a lot of trouble with this basic stuff like matching names and birth dates. A lot of states are trying to move towards fingerprint-based records, but if you had something incorrectly attached to your fingerprint a long time ago because of, again, a clerical error. Now it's even harder to get rid of because the state says, well, no, this is justified by a fingerprint. So I have a people in my study that come in with offenses from, you know, 100 years ago or the wrong statute was entered in. So it should have been shoplifting, but it shows up as a violent crime. And then they try to figure out where to go to fix it. And everyone sort of passes responsibility to a different agency within the state. So there's this like internal inconsistency between the different branches and then this like external pressure um, as soon as those records are made public and on a background check or on a website. The person doesn't know where to turn first to fix it. Yeah, so it almost it creates more confusion in that because there's no or there's no cohesion between the bodies. Right, and yeah. it really comes down to how comfortable are you with online reputation management, right? Which yeah. is a very class-based uh, strategy that people that have the time and the means and the energy and the resources to deal with their online identity typically aren't also dealing with a lot of other issues with the justice system. So the people that are already kind of dealing with multiple um, things happening and dealing with all these different government institutions, they don't really have the time or the energy to go deal with this. Yeah. And so I, I think there's a very clear inequality implication for how um, people are able to strategy, strategize and manage these records. Yeah, so is the, would the burden really be on them to get the records fixed then? There is, or is there any level of accountability for the, the bodies or...? Is there so, a legal framework in place or anything? Yeah, I really I mean it really does come down to the the person themselves. Yeah. We believe there's even barriers there. So in New Jersey, where I do a lot of this research, to get a copy of your own criminal record, which you might think is, you know, you should be able to go in and get it. You have to pay fifty dollars to get fingerprinted. You have to wait a couple of weeks for it to show up in the mail. So even just understanding what's on your record takes resources and time. Um, and then once uh 
you do identify an error, um, it's up to you to notify first the courts and, and get that letter and go to the, the arresting agency and get documentation from them, put it all together. And then you have to serve these legal documents to all these different uh, third parties that might already have your information. So it becomes like a, a big trap for people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of paperwork and stuff to go through yeah. everything as well. I know um, I've personally experienced working with tax credits and different things like that where people just don't understand right. the um, like the letters they get. And the minute they see an official envelope, it's like, oh, I'm not going yeah. to read that. <laughs> trying or, to avoid it. Yeah, and then when it comes to the final warning, then they finally go and try yeah. and do it. Yeah, it's, and we do have the Fair Credit Reporting Act in the U.S., um, but it's really failed in this arena because most of the websites that report these criminal histories, they call themselves a, a people search engine or just like an informal background check, which means they're also cheaper um, mm-hmm. or sometimes free. And they're not held to the same standards that the U.S. government tried to put on credit reports, which is that you should have access to the information, that there's a, a, a path you can take to remedy an error. Um, some of the more uh, established background check vendors are underneath the, the FICRA compliance, but but most of them aren't. So it's really the informal records that are the, the hardest to deal with, but the easiest yeah. to get access to. And so that would, that would affect affect um, employment and credit and other things like that. Right. Um, it seeps into all these different sort of institutional areas that you don't think about as being part of the yeah. criminal justice system. So it sort of it stacks up on top of each other. There's problems after problems. Mm-hmm. Um, are, there any, are there any cases that you know of where it actually turns into like physical punishment then? Um, the reason that I say is because there's a like a big controversy now in the UK about um, paedophile hunters and things like that, and there's been issues with identity, and people's faces have gone online, and then their families have been attacked, or they've been attacked and it wasn't actually them, they just had the same name, or they look similar. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've came across that in your research, like yeah, vigilantism or... Sure, yeah, yeah. we've been, <laughs> some colleagues and I have been calling them the digilantes, like the, the digital vigilantism. So it's... Uh, it's more of this kind of online witch hunt that, that we see in, in other arenas too. And, and, and you hear these stories about people that are being bullied online or, or harassed online. And I think that not even necessarily that they're physical harms, but, but these reputational harms mm-hmm. um, manifest themselves in all these different arenas in somebody's life. And the thing about you know, the, the internet is that everyone's at home hiding behind their screen. So they're going to say things to and about other people they wouldn't do in person. And a lot of the um, chatter on websites about this is framed as a, a neighborhood watch or a community group uh, endeavor. But these aren't, this isn't really your community. You're not really talking to each other. You're not yeah. really getting to know your neighbors, but you're, you're all ganging up on somebody online and publicly shaming them. So I think it's just sort of the, the, velocity and the veracity of how people respond to someone who's accused of a crime is is really extreme online and it does lead to witch hunting and of course it there you don't have a lot of privacy in the u.s once you've been arrested so your address can go on the internet your photograph and uh you're very vulnerable to to people going outside the justice system and, and exacting their own kind of version of punishment is that before any charge or before that's it's right. It's just straight after arrest, is it? Yeah. yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, there's a, a lot of unevenness between the states and yeah. within the states, between the counties. So if you think about the information systems of criminal justice, it's really like 3,000 different mini criminal justice systems that operate in the U.S. And they all have their own version or their own decision making about what they're going to put online. So some police departments will put 
all your personal information on there next to your picture. And that's before a prosecutor has even looked at the arrest. This is before there's been any sort of um, check on the constitutionality of that arrest or that search. It's just uh, the police's discretion to arrest yeah. you. But now you have this record online. And then a mugshot website will come and they'll scrape those websites every day. Your photo goes online, stays online forever unless you pay another company, which is often, it turns out, owned by the same company as the, the mugshot's website to come and take that photo down for you. Yeah. At that point, it's probably replicated to 15 others. So again, this is before any sort of charge or conviction. So there's an enormous due, due process problem with this. Yeah, and it almost seems like there's no way out of it. If it keeps getting replicated, then how do you... How do you solve that? But, right. Um, so that's, I was going to ask, what, what sort of remedies do your individuals have for, for that sort of thing? Yeah, so there's the creative remedies and then there's some legal approaches. Um, the legal approaches are that some states have made it illegal for a mugshot website to charge a takedown fee. But like I said earlier, what that's done is had these companies have just created a second company that's a reputation management company mm. to kind of uh, pick up the slack there. Another legal option would be to seal or make non-public uh, pre-conviction records like booking photos, arrest logs, court documents. Um, once the U.S. government ha- lets something be made public, it's fair game under the First Amendment to keep republishing it. So there is some consensus that it has to happen at that at that governmental level. Other people think that it's a search engine question. So mm-hmm. borrowing a bit from the right to be forgotten argument that, you know, why is Google linking to these things and shouldn't people have some some management over their search results. That hasn't gotten much traction, though, in the U.S. Um, And then there's the creative things people do, like change their name or populate their search results with with positive things by building websites and lots of social media accounts. Again, you have to be pretty comfortable with the Internet to do that. Uh, But but these are sort of the Band-Aid strategies that people are using in the short term until some sort of policy shift happens. Yeah, and again, there's an issue in equality because first you have to pay if you're going to do that one. You have to be able to afford to pay. And then the second one, you have to have knowledge of the Internet and that technology and be able to use that pretty much. uh, Yeah, I think so. And there's this such a variation of, you know, where you end up getting arrested or processed by the court results in a totally different set of online search results in a different jurisdiction. So it's hard to even learn from other people, or it's hard to get a macro-level approach to this because there's such differences between places. Um, And you mentioned the right to be forgotten there, and we've sort of touched on the free speech issue. Um, The right to be forgotten is coming, well, it's already in the EU, but it's it's going to be legislated for now in the GDPR in May. And it says like incorrect information or information that's out of date. You can take that off or have it lowered on a, a search engine result. Um, essentially, just to, to just for anyone listening. Um, but is you mentioned that that's not really getting traction in the U.S. So why why, why would that be? Or why do you think? There's a few reasons. The first is sort of this fanaticism about the First Amendment in the U.S. It's like First Amendment absolutism and this belief that's been supported by the courts quite a bit that um, we really, really need to protect speech. And embedded in the First Amendment is that we have the right to access information. So the Freedom of Information Act means that as as, as people, we can ch- have a check on our government. So there's this counter argument uh, to some of the points I make that we need to have transparency in who's getting arrested so that we can hold police accountable for racial, ethnic, gender disparities and people that are getting um, stopped by the police. And that is important, right? So there's this balance of 
okay, how do we have accountability and transparency in government so that we're honoring the First Amendment in the way it was meant to be honored? But at the same time, where does privacy and autonomy and liberty fit into that? And I think yeah. that's a, a very tough balance in the U.S. because the Constitution is not at all clear about a right to privacy um, like it is in some other countries. And so it's this assumed that you have a privacy right. And the justices have said, you know, it's a, a penumbral right. It's a shadowy right that isn't clearly articulated, but it's sort of assumed to be there. Well, that doesn't really work. Yeah. You know, if it's not there, it's not there. And so the legal arguments um, fall to the side of the First Amendment so strongly that it's just hard to imagine um, Google being censored. And also mm -hmm. it's, you know, Google is enormous and powerful and and courts are not as powerful. Yeah. And, and so so there's just this issue of, of the relative power of the institutions at play. You think they would have more lobby power as well in the, in the U.S.? Like lobby power, like power to, like sites like Google, they would have more, more of a chance to like put that money into campaigning and stuff and maybe yeah, against it. Yeah. Absolutely. I think also just the, the Silicon Valley value system is being yeah. exported into all these other parts of life when it comes to data and efficiency and transparency. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, a lot of the reason that an app is made or a website is created is to do something better than the old way of doing it. And criminal justice yeah. is old and clunky and bureaucratic. And it, in some ways it's supposed to be because if you're accused of a crime, you want that system to, to have a lot of checks and balances. Uh, that doesn't really fit in with these values of, of, of big data and AI and machine learning and trying to do things in this like, very smart and, and quick way. Um, those are two totally competing systems. And, and I think that criminal justice is in a weird spot with, with how to respond to that. Yeah, because it's like Silicon Valley is constant innovation, constant optimization. It's not really, well, criminal law has almost been the same for how long. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, for a reason right. a, lot, a lot of the times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, one thing I wanted to mention is my own research is on uh, risk assessment systems. So um, assessing whether someone will um, essentially commit another crime in the future and are they risky and therefore what parole or bail and different decisions the different decisions that need to be made there um would this would those two issues link so would there be an issue with criminal record data for that so could it affect like what what sentence someone could get or what parole yeah yeah this is this is definitely the extensions of the research i'm doing into the more sort of policy and practice practice realms so the problem with these risk assessment tools is is well there's a lot of problems but one is that we often don't know what's going into the algorithms and in the U.S., um, for sure, that's been considered a trade secret because these are not created within government. They're created outside of government using tools that predict all sorts of other behaviors. And, and now criminal justice and recidivism is, is the new iteration of that. So not only do people often not know what's going into the risk assessment, um, if you think about how criminal justice data are produced, like I said earlier, very diffused, very localized kind of idiosyncratic systems that are all are a little different, well, that's, that's hard. That's not a, a strong measure of anything. And if we know that there's all these accuracy problems and, and, and issues with what someone's record looks like, you know, we're placing a lot of value on that record to put it into, into an algorithm. And so, so there's the accuracy problem and then there's the transparency problem um, that I think are, are really consequential for just the, a wholesale takeover of, of the belief in risk assessment tools. I think they can be great for limiting discretion or at least acting as a check on discretion. But um, but there's a lot of problems in, in how they, they reproduce inequalities that, that started in the criminal justice system. 
yes, and let's start with the data itself and how that's mm-hmm. created and where, where it comes from, yeah. So how do you see the, f- the future of this then playing out? Do you, do you think there could be more remedies or could there be more um, burdens placed on, in the EU, we would call them the data controllers, so that would be um, like the the courts, the police, all, all the people that own those sites, could there be more burdens placed on them or do you think because of the Silicon Valley um, solutionism, do you think that'll just keep perpetuating and get more sh- or what do you think from there, your own? Yeah, it's a tough question. I think that, I, th- I think it'll be more of a question of where the energy and the movement for reform comes from. And it's not going to come from the state and, and I, I don't think it's going to come from the the data vendors and aggregators that are benefiting from some of the disorganization of the state. But what I think it's going to come from is people who are impacted by this. Criminal justice in America impacts people who are racial minorities, who are lower income, who struggle with addiction and homelessness. And there's not a lot of room there to politically organize when you're you're dealing with, with all these systems. But when you're talking about every single person who's getting arrested, is getting their mugshot online, you're getting a lot of people who are middle class and do have some resources and do have uh, kind of a stake in their identity, a professional stake or a personal stake in a way that will cause some leverage. So mm-hmm. there's uh, some activists that I've been interviewing for my book who are are kind of attacking the, these mugshot websites or, or kind of trying to, to take things down and, and they get this enormous response from people who work in tech for instance, but, you know, got arrested one night and now there are yeah. pictures online. And, and these are the people that I think are going to gonna be the strongest advocates for reform um, because they understand the tech side and they understand the reputational harms and they understand how easy it is to get swept up into this this digital punishment apparatus. It it doesn't take much to get arrested if you really want to be arrested. Yeah. There's a lot of police in America. <laughs> and, and so I think that the more it becomes just this you know, there's 11 to 13 million arrests a year in the United States. If each law enforcement agency continues this march toward releasing booking photos, that's a lot of booking photos per year. That's a lot yeah. of people. So I think that our our biggest, the biggest shift is going to just come from how massive this problem is. Um, but it's been kind of in the shadows for a long time because, you know, only a few states put the mugshots on at first. And so this rapid acceleration, I think, means that it's there's going to be some movement. Um, if it makes its way to the Supreme Court at some point, and I think some of the low-hanging fruit will be this pre-conviction stuff, trying to figure out a better way to organize that data, then maybe we'll see a change at, at sort of state disclosure levels. But it's going to be a tough fight because there's this, a very strong First Amendment lobby with journalists and tech companies that are going to are gonna push back. Um, but once enough people are swept into it, I think that might be a, a chance for some reform. Yeah, cause it's almost strange because it seems like they're giving themselves more work to do at times, like before <laughs> pre-booking. Like, why why would you need to go ahead and put that online? Right, if they're giving right. themselves more work. So, if you're talking about efficiency, then just cut. You could cut that. That's then, that's a good point. You know, people find such entertainment value in these booking photos, which is which yeah. is also part of the problem, I think. And so, there's also we got to change our public attitude on on making fun of people when they're having the, a really bad a really bad day. That's great. Thank you, thank you very much for coming along. Um, hope we'll be back soon. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Adam Harkins and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. 
and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Sarah Lagerson for joining us on this episode today. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at QBLawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Harkins, and this was LawPod.